This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and you're very welcome to part two of Racing Reflections. The stories and memories of Irish racing people. In this selection of interviews with well-known personalities in the Irish turbred horse racing industry, and sadly some of whom have now passed away, will illustrate the passion for the sport. And we will start with T.P. Burns, born in 1924, and recalling here his early days as a jockey, and on occasions saddling up to compete against his father, Tommy Burns. In those days, there was a three-day at the Curra uh, nearly four or five times a year. Three, three days. The winner I rode was a mare called Prudent Rose in 1938. Now, in 1938. That was the first winner in, the first public winner that I rode. And who was the owner of that horse? The owner of that horse is a local man called Hannon. Yeah. A farmer. Go back to those days, and I mean that's yeah. even before the Second World War. Now, in the nineteen thirties. Oh yeah, that's that yeah. was that, that was well before. That was back in the economic war time, the thirties. How bad? Nobody were... had a mob at that time. Daddy, Daddy often used to tell me stories. You know, five five shillings, ten bob. A pound. Oh, you were a rich man. But, I mean, those were the very early days now. Yes, those um, were very early days. So your apprenticeship, was that done in Longville then? That was, that, that was the, my early apprenticeship was down there. And then I moved on. Where did I move on to then? Uh, my apprenticeship, well, I... In my apprenticeship, you see... It it was it was really I was really professional from once I got my indentures. My indentures uh, brought me to my early uh, racing life, if you like. Yeah. But was there? I'd say there weren't too many people going into that profession in those days. Not quite as many, but there was always apprentices. There was always apprentices. You know. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to get on, and, and, you know, you only got a few shillings uh, a week. And, and oh, nothing a week. Half a crown for your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> half, a, half a crown or five bob. And did you get any shares of, of the, the winnings then as well? That I know, time. and if you rode a winner or two, and uh, the the owner was decent, he'd give you a little present, a small present. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's, that's the way it was yeah. at the time. Father was a very, very good jockey. 
wrote man, a lot of classic winners. I, I wrote a lot of classic winners. I was, you know, I was lucky too. Yeah. And, and of course, you, your father kept writing until he was about 50, didn't he? He fairly nearly, yeah. 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 So you remember he's writing days for years. Oh, I do, yeah. I wrote with him. Imagine, father and son. Yeah, yeah. Where now? Anywhere there's a right reading. Yeah. And that I got a right and he got a right the same way they had. You know. The two of you had it off. <laughs> My second name was Pascal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. To distinguish the two of you. Yeah. 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 Can you remember all the other trainers that you actually rode for? I mean, as, as young, in the early days, as a young lad. Yeah, well, the Brabisons uh, were very good trainers. They're still there, yeah. up in the corner. And there was a man called Featherston. And there was a man called Murnus. He'd be uh, a brother of the famous Murnus in England. As I say, there was a, a, a lot of a lot of important people. With the travel being so difficult at that time, the further the deer they got to the park, the better. Yeah. And did CIE bring the horses around in those days? What CIE? You know the. Uh, there was a. Uh, it there was a three or four. Horse boxes uh, owned by the CIE, and they used to get them. They used to get to the, get them to the meetings, and then we have to use the train a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would you bring the horses from the stables to the train? Is that is that the? Way oh yeah, no, all the Cora horses now go up to the Cora siding, yeah. and there'd be a special. To bring them to Dublin, to the park. Yeah. And, as I say, that'd be the centre of Leinster, if you like. Tommy Murphy, born in 1936, joined Vincent O'Brien at Baldyle in 1974, being the second jockey to Leicester Pickett, and he describes here what the place was like in those days. Someone rang me up and said, uh, you could have a chance of riding for Vincent, would you like to ride for Vincent O'Brien, a second jockey? I think Liam Ward rang me up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I said, of course, I would. So I went down and had an interview with him. No problem. And job got. In 1974? In 1974. It was a different place in those days. I mean, it was it was, it was before Coolmore and, and all that. Yeah, Coolmore hadn't really started no, at that time. Yeah. No, no. Can you describe what it was? What was it like in Ballydale in, in at that stage? Ah, sure, it was unreal comparison to other stables. You know, everything was a hundred percent. Everything done. You had everything there. Best of gallops, well-bred horses. No, and not a world of horses. I think he'd 50 horses when I went there. Yeah. And so you were the second jockey, second uh, jockey. Uh, kept yeah. by him. Yeah. Who else was there? There was Vincent Roster. He'd a few rides. He rode a few winners. Big Fenton. He'd a few. They were apprentices there. They were apprentices of his. Okay. And who was the first jockey? Lester was the first jockey oh, yeah. then, yeah. So the, the so it was it was nice to be. Oh gosh, it was to nice to slot in that, there. Yeah, that time, yeah, yeah. And he'd love saying to you, Tommy, uh, Saturday Lester's not coming over. You can ride those three. Should be three good rides, like you know. You should ride two winners. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. yeah, it's something always to look forward to. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And and so did that passion stay with you? You know, like that it did. That, that desire to keep keep. You know, find the winner. And find the winner, yeah. That's what, yes, definitely. And over the years with, with Vincent then, I mean, he, uh, uh, was he, a, how was he to, to work for? Terrific. No yeah. corners on him at all, straightforward. 
you discuss how you drive the horse. Yeah. Maybe the day before. There wouldn't be words spoken to parade ring. Yeah. So you had a free Everything. Like a free oh, yeah. Freehand. Yeah. And w- w- when you... Um, so kind of you... You were wearing. Uh, I mean, you. I just see the progress of your yes. of, of your career. You you were going up a notch all the time. You know, getting every year got better. Yeah. And the fact that you were riding out really good horses, you were guaranteed winners. This is it, yeah. of course. Yeah. Can you remind me of of some of your really good races there? Well, uh, the fifteen hundred. It used to be run to finish part. It was called the fifteen hundred. Yeah. And uh, why was that a great race? Now that fifteen. That's years. a real speed yeah. for two-year-olds. Yeah. Speed five furlongs, complete dash, and they had to have speed, like because the uh, up the Phoenix Park, I suppose they do the five furlongs in about so it's fifty fifty-five seconds. You know, wow. they would hit the gate and run. So, what horse were you? Riding on that that occasion, I rode two winners of it. Rode one for Clem Magner, which was Pianissimo, and the other one was, oh, boys, oh boys, yeah, phone call. But did but those horses uh, at that kind of speed? I mean, they were real athletes. Oh, those yes, horses, yeah, yeah. And they were they were the. But that's what you need is speed. But speed in any horse, let him be a miler, he has yeah. to have speed like. Yeah. A three mile chaser have to have speed, like if you're going to Yeah. Contest it. You know? But when you think of fifteen hundred meters in, yeah. in fifty two seconds, is it? F- about fifty five. God mm. I mean that's mm. that's going at a Oh you're going to fair yeah. not now. Yeah. yeah. It must be a great buzz for a jockey riding a horse that fast, you know. It is, of course, but she never, when you get so used to it all, then like this. Yeah, second nature. It's second nature, yeah. Maureen Mullins, born in 1929, met her future husband, Paddy Mullins, a horse trainer whom she married in 1954. Paddy took over his family's business from his father, William, the same year. And Maureen here talks about both of them building up the business uh, horses uh, was uh, what brought you probably together was well it, it probably was yeah. yes probably was and um, we got married in 54 and I remember when we came back from our honeymoon we had he had a horse running at Nace in the bumper and um, Cross Patrick belonged to Mr. Tom Nicholson and um, it won by about eight lengths, I think. And um, he couldn't understand that he had been away for a fortnight and the chap who was riding it out told him that the first day he rode him out that he ran away with them, and he was working up in the field now where the gallop is now in Deninge. And uh, he said he didn't ride him the next day or until the race at Nace. And he just walked him up and down the avenue, the long avenue. And he couldn't understand how he was so fit. And he said, the horse was my artist's son, you know, the sire of queer times. So he said, if I ever get an artist's son to train, I will know I'll have a head um, start because um, that horse did very little strong work and certainly the fortnight before he ran he only did one piece of work now he he was bought by um, Major Caslett for the Queen Mother and he was quite successful afterwards so um, he used to train for um, Jack Downer who, who lived nearby and when it came the time for to send dress parade to stud. He said he advised Mr. Donahue that he thought that Artisan would suit the mayor. 
So he brought the mare down. I remember going down to Mr. Sweeney's stud, the Orwell stud in County Tipperary. He brought down dress parade, and the result was height of fashion. She won 13 races for Paddy, and then uh, he had an argument um, uh, with the owner um, in 1962, I think it was, and uh, she left here. But it, as he said, it was a great head start for training the artist's sons. He did have another artist son afterwards and a winner, and um, that is how he trained them, just uh, very little yeah. uh, galloping, very little galloping and mostly walking and trotting around. Right, but when you came in here in uh, in nineteen in the nineteen fifteen in November nineteen fifty four, you came to this house, did you? Yes, we came to this house. Yes, it used to be belong to the agent um, of the Ninga House, and um, Mrs. Crampton um, sold it to us. She from the family of the great family in Dublin, Crampton and Company. They were very successful builders in the middle of the century well middle of the 19th century yeah that, and and when you came in here you had to add your own personality to it and so did did, did you do it up or well we didn't it really is we just put in electricity i think that was all it's just the same <laughs> house still really? and we put in a, and you rare just enters there yes and um there were no stables here actually only about five uh, stables, and we started adding them on as the money came in, as we, as he was successful at the training. Yes, but uh, was Paddy when you married Paddy? Was he? Um, he took it over from his father. Yeah, that year. That was it. That year. That year, yes. And and so now he he was. He was out, out on, on his, his own, own. Yeah. yes, very much out on his own. But he could use the gallop, he could use the ninge um, for, you know, as the crops used to decide where he could work. I mean, the most of the place where the gallop is now, that was used for corn. And, um, of course, he couldn't go in at the yeah. uh, at certain times. And then crossing the road, he uh, used the Stone Park, which is another huge field. But that was always uh, fairly dry, as you can imagine from the name Stone Park. And um, he used those. Yeah. But we never went to the Curra or all the race courses which are now um, used for gallops on the day there's no racing. We never used them. And Paddy's father's first name was... Uh, William. William. William Mullins, yes. And so his father, William, did, did they get on? I mean, were they... Was there a, a, a well, clash the, of personalities? Well, just a little bit. But then, of course, when he moved out, um, it wasn't as difficult. But he was a wonderful horseman. I was William. Yeah, Mullins. Yeah. And he he was riding and hunting up to the time he was 70. And you, you could see the local... Uh, he used to hunt locally. And also, if he was never stuck for a horse because he was great friends with Major McCalment, Major Dermot McCalment. And any day he was stuck, he just sent a message from the post office in Goresbridge. And then he had... He was never stuck for a hunter. And he used to go hunt a couple of days a week. And um, and did he? Uh, he would have trained horses for the cow. Well, he 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 didn't, but he was very friendly with them because they were always had um, hounds for the hound show, and you kept every farmer kept one or two, and he was very good at it. And he was had an innate knowledge of horses. Yeah, Barbara Collins. Born in Dublin in 1930, moved to the Curra after she met her future husband, Con, and there she spent the most of a half a century training horses. And she spoke here about how much change 
has come into the industry in that time. What is the difference now? The difference is that it's desperately commercial now. Totally and utterly and completely commercial. And you still have the... The, like, like, say, for going to see the, the race at Leopardstown on, 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 on Sunday to see that horse, the, a horse brings in a big crowd, a huge crowd. I mean, it was absolutely packed to see the winner of that. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's it, then it was um, there was a great friendliness, a great camaraderie, and now it is. I mean, the money then there was nothing like the money that there is in it now. Nothing like the money. But we all survived, and that was it. Mm. Okay, and uh, obviously you had to have a passion. and, and Oh, very uh, definitely. had to like the sport. And, and, oh, you uh, just loved it, absolutely loved it. I mean, Khan thought of nothing else but his horses. He he never looked at uh, um, what checks were going out. He just signed them. Mm. Really? He, yeah. he wasn't particularly interested, you know. I used to have to keep the money. <laughs> Mind it, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, and and like uh, uh, Geese Weld will have told you, Charlie and Con were always great friends. Yeah, great friends. Right. They were all friendly, you know. Yeah. But even though I'm very friendly with all the, the, but it's it's very different. It's very different. It's very it's like the rest of the world. It became too. It's become very commercial. Very commercial. So the the horse industry, uh, it's made up of uh, the the turf club and uh, or yeah. it was in, in the, the early turf days club, the and turf then club, it was, yeah. but. How, I mean, the people who were connected to the Turf Club, I mean, were they all, they were working, again, voluntary a lot. Oh, very, it was all voluntary, it was all voluntary, yeah. So the, the, Oh, very definitely. I mean, I, I know them all. I mean, I knew them all. And I used to have great times at the, at the current. But there was, um, uh, I'm just thinking now, uh, Tony Terry, who was... And he's still alive. He's eighty-six. And there was Victor McCalmont. There was John de Borg. There was um, P- um, the, the Peter Patrick Hempel, the Lord Hempel. There was um, you know they were totally dedicated to the horses, totally and utterly. Mm. And Victor McCalmont even retired from the turf club. At least um, stepped down from the turf club because uh, he was. Um, you would probably know about it. They took a ra- He took a race away from somebody, and they reinstated it. And he left. He, he retired. I mean, they were men of principle, men of great principle, great principle. Yeah, and of course, um, um, I, I think that the trainers like uh, Darkie Prendergast and Vincent O'Brien and. Well, Vincent, you know, Darkie and Vincent just didn't particularly like one another, I don't think, at all. But but I can understand why. <laughs> but Darkie was uh, was uh, a particularly nice man. They were all very yeah. child. They all had great personalities, wonderful personalities. Okay, but sometimes that personality would clash. Oh, with definitely. Yes, yes, oh, very would. definitely it clashed. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And um, Dermot Wells' father and... Um, but I would just know the flash ones, really. Well, I, I knew all the, the the jump ones, but, I mean, we're really a flat racing stable. Mm. You train the horses out here in, in, on, in, the, in the, on, on the, the car, car yeah, which yeah. Is, is, is perfect Absolutely training perfect. ground we, for We've them. just got an entrance just across the road. Yeah, mm. yeah. Just straight in, that's it. So who... Uh, describe to me now the... So it's, it's the Irish Army, actually, uh, that owned own the, own, own the ground. Yeah. So do, do you own the ground, or have you... Nobody owns the ground, actually. Oh, it's commonage. It's commonage. Oh, it is commonage. Absolutely commonage. And uh, we, every lodge or everything around the corner had uh, rights, sheep rights on it. And um, sheep rights was that you had the right, for one sheep right, you could put two sheep on. Mm? And we had masses of sheep rights. And you see, I'm talking about now, I I can't remember when they did it, but they, they, um, there was never any railings on the corner. And, they wanted to rail in the race course, and we gave in our sheep rights. Into well, I have I have uh, many of them now. I've got I've got uh, sixty-seven of them left, and um, but we gave in all our sheep rights to the curra so that they could bind this in, as in saying we're taking this to to, to cover so many sheep. If you know what I mean, so they were allowed to put yeah. the the railing around, and um, 
but you see all these railings around the there was nothing ever there there was no railings ever around that you know when you came to the roundabout there yeah. there was never any railings there was never any railing around the car mm. and and so uh, would the danger be when you're training horses that you know that that you would have somebody would run out or a sheep would run out or? they still can do it there's no doubt I mean there's no, ra- no ra- railings up the whole way along that they can yeah. still do exactly the same thing they can run out but funny if you, a horse, you know, they do drop their riders. And where do they come? They come exactly home. And we have two gates, as you can see there. And we have sheep, sheep sure. traps on the on yeah. the one coming in. But they never go to that one. They go for the other one. Because they're always brought out that one, out that gate. And they come straight back into the yard. Well, unless it gets very hysterical or gets injured or something like that. But if they drop a horse, they come straight back into the yard. And they know exactly where it's come. And absolutely. They, yeah, yeah. And you can watch them coming. And they don't ever go to that gate. They go to the other <laughs> gate, yeah. Stan Cosgrove, born in 1927. He studied veterinary at the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in 1946. And he became part-time manager at Meigler's Stud in 1962. And here he talks about the thoroughbred horse and its injuries. He talks about putting down a horse and also the relationship with the owners and the losing of Shergar. In 62, and I was the vet here then. And and did you give up everything else and no, just concentrate no. on this? No, I joined, I joined the veterinary work here. Oh, yes, yes. And yes. in 1970, you get away with things with half-bred horses. You won't get away with them with thoroughbred horses. Two different structures... The thoroughbred horse is much more sensitive and very prone to shock. You know, you get... Whereas the other one can take all that. Yeah. And what kind of injuries are you dealing with? Oh, every sort of injury. I mean, you get... There's certain fractures you get that you can repair below the hock and below the knee. But above those is not so easy. And the whole trouble is... Yeah, but the other problem with horses, trying to, when they're getting up after the surgery, that's when a lot of them damage themselves. Recovering yeah. from the anaesthetic. You can, without, you can get that problem. Now, over in, in Philadelphia, the, what's the name of the place? They had, what they used to do, Jack Jenny, they had a suit, and they put the horse into a suit, and they put him into a pool, and he floated around in the pool, and he got, he recovered in the pool. That's the way they did it. Yeah. It was very good. You bought him in Philadelphia. Why, because you were dealing with such an expensive animal, you know, that uh, it's like... You have to be so careful, I'm sure, in your in, in your. Oh, you have, to, you have to be careful. But I never put any value on what the, on that. That that would drive you crazy. Somebody said, this horse is worth a million. No, it was another horse. You treated them all the same. Mm. That was it. But if you got that, you got that complex into yourself, you got that this horse is... And it happens to them. There's this and that. No, you don't let that come into your head at all. You just do your best. When it comes to the stage where the horse has to be put down because of an injury, yeah. is, is that a tough thing to do? Yeah, it is. It is tough, yeah. But nowadays we, you give them an injection and to go asleep. I mean, there's nobody where to go. But in your time... In yeah, well, you don't use the humane killer. Yeah, but you... I suppose there was a time when you would just shoot them. Oh, that's right. Humane killer, shoot same as a sh- shot, just put up here. Through the forest? Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, the eyes, and you divided the, the, the ears. There's a spot there where the two of them met, you know? Yeah. That ear, that, yeah, that got him. And that was it? Yeah. And um, did you ever put down, uh, I'm sure you did in your time, a lot of, of thoroughbred horses? Oh. I put down, I didn't put down, I did put down a lot, but not that many, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
you wouldn't be putting that one every <laughs> No, day. you would not, I'd say not. <laughs> but it, it's a... But is it a labour of love? Do you like your work? Oh, yeah. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. You know, and you have a lot of worries and worrying. Uh, did you do your best and could you have done better? And You know, all that. Yeah. And because you were the manager here, managing the, the, this place, uh, you were answerable all the time to... Did you get on well with... Oh, yeah. the owner. Oh, the, the two of us are. I used to say, we, we, we have agreement that the debt to be part. <laughs> yes. And uh, oh, I got on wonderfully well with him. But he's a very wealthy man now. Mm. And I remember 1972, he bought the most expensive brood mare in the world at that time. Who was that? What, what a treat. Bought her in a dispersal sale, widener dispersal sale in uh, in Keeneland, or not in Keene, in uh, Lexington. $450,000 at that time, which is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That's nearly 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Why did he take that chance? He, he could afford it, he only wanted the best. And she turned out to be very successful. Yeah. She, she was a damn a be my guest. A horse called be my guest, which is a good yeah. horse. Yeah. The security, uh, because it must that you, you know, kind of the the the, the value of, of of these animals, and you ha- you have so many of them here. I mean, is that a big thing here? Security. Well, I'd say I'd say it's get it's it's on the increase. Yeah, it's on the increase, but we have. We we were going to get a security firm here, and we didn't. Our own lads had to do it. So they do it 24 hours a day, you know. But uh, we'd probably have to put in a few cameras as well. Yeah. But there's no nobody is going to go and steal a horse. They're no, they're no good to them, as they found out with Shergar, you know. <laughs> horse are no good. They're no good. You yeah. can't do anything. You can't breathe. You can't do anything. Right. No, nothing. Yeah, so it, 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 they're quite an intelligent animal then. That they, they, they kind of know their own surroundings. Uh, they do, and I mean, with him, I think what happened, they, 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 they had some horsemen to, to take him, but they then had to get back to where they were walking because they were missing. There would be suspects, you know. It's a small country and a small industry. Well, they left the horse, and I think uh, we went up. I got a, a chap to go up, a lawyer, uh, David Hogan. He was on the television last night. He was out in Bolivia. And he went up to the O'Callaghan, up in the jail, wherever he was. And he signed a saying the horse was shot after a couple of days. Just couldn't manage him. What a waste. Uh, yeah, waste, and they, they discovered yeah. that that the Aggie Khan didn't own the horse. The horse was owned by the syndicate. Yeah. Aggie Khan five shares or something. But why shoot him? Why not give him back? Why not? Uh, no. Afraid of getting caught. And uh, getting caught, and, and uh, they never came up about where he was buried around because the Irish are so fond of the horse that they think more of that than a person, you know, which is not right yeah. opinion, but they were very slow to come forward with anything, you know. And and that's why I'm saying the security. So since then, did things start to well, change? The, yeah. yeah, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, that time, yeah, studs, you just opened the front gate and you went in, you know. Yeah. And... Uh, but as I say, I don't think there'll ever, ever a good horse will be stolen again. They're no good. Yeah. They're no good. Even if you export them to India or anywhere, they can't register them. You know. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because they, they, they're marked and they yeah. that. And, and the, the, the way the industry is now, Stan, you know, the, the, um, the turf club has, has, has uh, dismantled and changed and yeah. it, it's now horse racing Ireland. Um, but you would, have watched, you would have watched and seen all those changes too, you know. 
I'm here just outside Moon talking to uh, Johnny Harrington. Johnny, where you're living here, uh, have you? Could you tell me about it? Could you? When did you first come here? About forty-one years ago, I came here, bought this place before I got married, and I was working at the Curra Bloodstock Agency for thirty years, and they their headquarters were at Newbridge, and um. I was with them up to about 20 years ago. And I, oh, where did it all start? Uh, where well, did you grow up? I came from Cork. My family were made paint, Harrington's and Goodlass Wall. And they made all the paint in Ireland practically in those days. And I wasn't, didn't particularly like paint, so I <laughs> didn't last there very long. And um, got in, thought I'd like to be a trader, horses, but didn't know much about them. And um, I went over to Sir Gordon Richards in yep. England and um, to learn the game. I was there for a couple of years and soon discovered that you'd want a lot of capital to train and wasn't really my... I had no capital and I don't know what ability I really had. So I got a chance to join the Curra Bloodstock Agency through... How did that come about? Well, through contacts like any... Um, to Major Victor McCallum, who was a shareholder in the, in the company. But it was a very small company in those days, and anyhow, I joined them. And after a few years, I was the recession was over, and we started to grow very fast, and I bought quarter, 25% of the company, and we had some great years. We controlled all the shipping of horses in Europe, all the flying, all the aeroplanes, very big insurance. We... The buying and selling horses was only a sort of sideline, really, and the whole thing took off. It took off, and then things changed. Yeah, we found we a partner of mine, Colonel Dick Warden, found Sheikh Mohammed in Dubai, bought him his first horses, managed all his horses, and then after about seven or eight years, Sheikh Mohammed headhunted all our good shipping people and what have you. So I thought it was about time to get out, and things were changing. Coolmore taking over. The, the the there was very little business left for the the middleman and um, so I sold out and got involved in a bit of property and what have you and, and um, I in the meantime I'd married Jessica who was a very good horsewoman she rode for the Ireland the Olympics I think she still would be the best three day event rider they ever had and um we didn't mean to start training racehorses, but we trained a few for our own. And then a great friend of mine, Teddy Dunraven, had a filly, been trained on the curra and didn't like the curra, so I had to manage for him. And we brought her down here for the winter and settled our head. And anyhow, we tra- we took out a license and trained her, and she won a couple of listed races. And, and we, that's where we started. And from then on, <laughs> um, it's been a great success story on Jessica's behalf, not on mine. Moscow Flyer and numerous horses and um, I mean she's one of she's now in the top four or five trainers in Ireland and um, been pretty successful well that's it in a nutshell uh, but you know to, to get to that point and mm-hmm. to get to that great success uh, along the way uh, when it all started when you first got that job you left your your family business at home mm. and, and you moved up to the car and you got settled in what was your brief there in the what were you doing exactly oh just um, looking for clients to sell them mainly national hunt horses Fred Winter was my client Fred um, Rimmels then later on Nicky Henderson all those trainers really sold horses too and um had a great I used to go to Australia every year for two or three months and sold quite a lot of horses out there and rather enjoyed it and um but you do get stale and bored with it. Well this this would have been the seventies, wouldn't it? Yeah, seventies. Yeah. But in, in in that time, I mean mm. things weren't really really moving. Uh, no, you know, they, no, we would have been the biggest at in those days in the certainly the British Bloodstock Agency would have been much bigger than us in buying and selling horses but we were much bigger in the other in the insurance and in the shipping of horses the transport and all that end of it but the sort of boring end of it but it's um, 
It, oh, but but it, it's fascinating at the same time too. You were at the heart of where it was all happening mm-hmm. at that time, yeah. and and who were the who were the people who were the well, the my main part, people? Peter yeah. McKeever, mm-hmm. who's main person, and David Minton, who came to work for us. I think in Newmarket about two pounds a week he was getting, and now he's leading bloodstock agent in England, and then we diversified into real estate, and we employed Paddy Jordan, who was very young at the time, and he was with us about 10 years, and then he... Why did you diversify? I mean, well, was we, there enough... We, we, we had the contacts, and um, we, we, I met Paddy playing golf, and I thought he was a very high-class guy, and I thought we had the contacts, and he had the know-how, so that's how he joined us. And then he, after 10 years, he felt he'd do better on his own, which he did. He, he, in the, during the boom, he, he sold more property in County Kildare than anyone. And um, would I be right in saying that uh, the you know the, at that time the bloodstock uh, part of horse breeding and and, and w- w- was at its, its its beginning stages? You know, people were beginning to realise the value of Irish horses. Well, yes, but I, I think there was always great value of Irish horses. Um, it was then John Magna came along, and he had completely different. Um, philosophy that no one thought of what he he took over the virtually took over everything and um, it didn't make it very easy if you didn't go along with them you you weren't going to get very far okay so there was that uh, uh, monopoly in it as well in in that if you were big uh, at that time you could you you were pulling strings well not not exactly no not pulling strings They, they were just more go-ahead, they more vision than the ordinary person. You know, I mean, they they had um, no, not pulling strings. Wrong, no. Okay, it's more, right. Wrong terminology. Yeah, but, uh, but no, no, no. They were just highly efficient, and they he knew to how to employ the right people, and you know what. And um, Coolmore, without Coolmore, Ireland wouldn't be what they are now in the industry. You know. Yeah. And was that dynasty or that changing of 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 uh, uh, before that? It was the uh, it was the great landowners. It was the yes. the Anglo Irish families that yeah. were you know that they had the, uh, the the running of it. And now you know you have people like John Magner mm. coming into it. Yes, well that was it. A lot of people. It was Irish people who would get uh, land values went up, and people uh, Irish. People are natural horse people, and they've done very, very well. You saw all of this happening yeah, really, I saw through, most, through the years. Yeah, I mean, at the time you didn't realise what was happening, but it it was um, it it was quite amazing, really. And then the, when the when the Arabs came along, before the Arabs, who, who were the people overseas taking interest? You know, that were buying Americans and. Yeah. Uh, Vincent O'Brien used to bring <coughs> train for all the top American people, and you, if you see Valerie Cooper, she will tell you exactly who they were. Yeah. And um, it was sort of—I mean, it's, it's a long sort of—you know—it yeah. took a long time to happen, but it, it's um, Coolmore and Robert Sangster was probably are the main. They were driving force. driving force. Robert Sangster was the main driving force behind Coolmore when they started. Yeah, and he was a lovely man, and um, but he he liked the good life, and he sort of Coolmore then bought Ballydoyle from Vincent and put in their own trainer Aiden, which has been unbelievably successful, and um, you know it's. Yeah, it's, really it's been a great story. But do, do you think, though, that uh, the, the, it's the people who made it, the people who were working in there? Yes, I think the I think the structure of Irish racing should have tra- changed thirty years ago. I think the I, I was a member of the National Hunt Committee, which is a offshoot of the of the Turf Club. They're totally out of date. People who work for them are civil servants, well, behave like civil servants, and it's they employ too many people. So do now the HRI, in one way, have done a great 
job for us in getting his government funding during during the good times. But racing should be funded by the bookmakers, not by the government. And HRI are exactly the same as the turf crap. They employed a lot of them. They employ too many people. They get paid unbelievable salaries. And racing can't afford them, basically. But because they are civil servants, you can't get in their way. They are controlling the business. Mick O'Toole, one of the great characters in Irish horse racing. Mick began his horse training career at the Phoenix Park, which was open ground in those days. And here he talks about training at the Phoenix Park and the other trainers at that time. And tell me, a, a daily routine in those days? Uh, it's the same as a daily routine now. You just got up and you got out the horses and you trained them and you put them back in the box and you tried to find out where you could find the easiest race for them and away you go. And they either won or lost. There was, nothing, uh, there was no say, great science about all this yeah. that they're making out now. But it's, no, it's a different ball game now. Unheard of the prices and everything horses are making now, you know. In those days... I mean, you could, you could, you didn't need that much money to live in those days as you do now. Yeah. Who was the first man who who gave you a horse to train? Um, um, the first man was a man that had clubs in England called Mr. Tellini, an Italian man, and uh, well, he didn't give me horses. I had a horse, and, and I recommended it to him because I knew him from going around with a great pal of mine, Jack Doyle, who was a bloodstock agent. Uh, we met people in London and we probably talked them into buying horses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. Down to the Phoenix Park you would go in the morning. and Oh, yeah. So was that, uh, that, that, that was open ground. Uh, anybody could uh, but it, it was a different thing now. It was open ground because there was no traffic around on the road much in those days and you could get from a yard near the Phoenix Park into the park. You couldn't train in the park now because it's... Uh, so it's, it's near, it's, of course, it's, it's, it's all it's, very busy. It's a racetrack. Yeah. The car's gone up the middle of it. Yeah. But there were a lot of trainers in the Phoenix Park in those days. Like Michael, Michael Grassick's father was there. So Hugh Nugent was there. And you, you can look through the statistics from the tour club. There's, there was, I'd say there was 20 trainers around the park in those days. Had you any really good lads who stayed with you all down through the years? Well, I had, well, I had a, a little... Not this present Johnny Morton, but... The first winner I had, a little fella from Dublin who who used to come to the park and he was with Willie Bourne. He uh, he rode the first winner at Lintola. Where was that? Can you remember what the meeting it was? Believe it or not, it was in Edinburgh in England. Yeah. Yeah. That was the most suitable race I could find. Right. Now, talk to me about this place here then. How It's about 40 years ago you, yeah. you, you bought this place. Yeah, yeah. How did that come about? How did, how did you... First of all, why here? Well, that was not the case why here. It was where you could find. Yeah. You know? Did and it come on the market or...? It, it was for sale for years because it used to be... This used to be um, Senator Parkinson's place. And you ask him, uh, people older... People would know more. He was, he, was, he was a senator. I think he was leading trainer in Ireland for years. But that was an old God's time, you know? Yeah, his um, his his son was a. You might remember Con Collins. Remember Con Collins, the trained. I do. He was a son of Senator. He was a son of Michael Collins, who also trained down there, where Senator Parkinson used to train as well. Did you find the uh, the the structure of horse racing in Ireland uh, easy to work with? I thought. I thought every. Uh, I think it, Ireland, is a, Ireland have been a fantastic country for horse, breeding horses, racing horses, very good trainers, very produce very good jockeys. I'd say, I'd say eighty percent of the jockeys riding over hurdles or fences in England are all Irish jockeys. No, I think, I think, and it, there's, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of jealousy in the game, and there's a lot of camaraderie in the game. Yeah. So, but that's the same in everything life. An interesting story told about the the you know the way um, 
uh, a punter went to to a fair and saw saw a horse, bought it very cheap, and it went on to win great things. I mean, the, the, uh, that's the same. A, that's yeah, only so. fucking fairy tales. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. I, I, I mean, you didn't. I mean, I wouldn't remember the. the I mean, I remember fairs, but I never remember racehorses being bought at fairs that did much good. It was before my time when that happened. Yeah, and no one alive today remembers it either. Yeah. Do you do you think you were you were looking in a sense you got in before the it got as popular as it as it did in later years? Ah no, racing was always popular in Ireland. Oh. Was it? Though? Ah, I thought it was. Yeah, racing. So, I mean, there were so there were more race tracks in Ireland fifty years ago than there is now. Yeah, and more dog tracks than there is now. Yeah, yeah. Huh. No, no, it was always popular, but people people didn't have the money. And there wasn't, there wasn't this. During my early days, there was an awful lot of support from English owners. I mean, the like of Vincent O'Brien and Paddy Prendergast, they did an awful lot of good for Irish racing in this way that they found new people to come into the game. And finding them to buy horses and leave them with them to train. Yeah. They were the pioneers of that. And, and uh, you, did you work closely with Vincent? No, 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 no. He was he was way ahead of me. Yeah. No, no it was very nice. He was very nice to me and all that, and we, I knew him very well. But uh, no, I mean, it was one of those games. It's like everything else. People say you help yourself. Yeah. Not, there's no nobody training horses running against you. Are going to help you? Are they? Well, no. It's a sport. No, it's, no, it's, a, no, it's not a sport. It's a business. Yeah. It's a sport for people who buy them and play with them, but it's not a sport for trainers. It's a business. And you want to be very dedicated to stick at it. I'm, I'm sure. How many horses have you out there at the moment? I have no horses now at all. Have you retired from it? I've retired ten years ago. And your son, Kieran? No, he's in, he's in a different thing altogether. He looks after jockeys and things. Oh, yes, that's right. And my daughter is a bloodstock agent. She buys a lot of horses. Yeah. You see her name and all them, that's you know, buying them horses, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, we've come to the end, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Racing Reflections and the lives of Irish racing people. If you'd like to hear the full interviews, visit our website at irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and thank you for listening.